Doctoring Alliance. And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Hello everybody, and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights, a side project internet radio show on the Two True Freaks internet radio network, and a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, coming from me, Andrew Leyland, who you may know from the Hey Kids comics broadcast on this here parish. Or you may not know me at all, I don't know, it's not like we think we're famous or anything. Despite the rather salacious title that you may have seen attributed to this episode, Banned in Britain, what I'm talking about has only in a few rare cases actually been banned. But the discussion of censorship is something I've had an interest in from being quite young, largely I suspect, because of the era I grew up in. Before we get into that, once again, let me say that if you're here for the comics, feel free to delete this from your MP3 player of choice. No harm. No foul. If you're still here, welcome to the show. Glad to have you aboard. I need a proper opening credit stinger for this, don't I? I'll get on that at some point. Anyway, censorship in the UK. In the early 1980s, the moral minority were in an uproar over this newfangled thing called the video cassette recorder. It not only allowed people to record television programmes when they're not in, but it also seemingly removed the ability of parents to parent. You see, the proliferation of video rental stores that were cropping up in unsuspecting neighbourhoods like vile weeds meant that young Timmy could rent any number of horrible video nasties from these vile dens of iniquity, and their existence was threatening the fabric of society with their putrid pap. A campaign was started to remove this filth from our nation's shelves, and like Frederick Wortham before them, these crusaders for decency managed to get regular people and corporations on side. The British Board of Film Classification suddenly found that the classification actually stood for censorship. This of course meant that parents weren't deciding what their children watched, faceless governors were. It meant that video stores clearly weren't doing their jobs, as any five-year-old could wander out with a freshly minted copy of I spit on your grave under their arms if these people were to be believed. The National Viewers and Listeners Association, led by noted nosy nightmare Murray Whitehouse, decided that certain films were causing young people to misbehave. She may have been right to give her her credit. After all, TV and film do affect people who didn't run in slow motion after watching The Six Million Dollar Man or slide over car bonnets after a particularly exciting episode of Starsky and Hutch. However, I remember being intrigued by this, even as a tyke. After all, who decided what I got to watch? And who decided if something was unsuitable? And if it was unsuitable, what was it doing to them? All told, 74 movies fell foul of the video nasty skirt, including Driller Killer, The Last House on the Left, Zombie Flesh Eaters, Straw Dogs, Evil Dead, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, I'm pretty sure nowadays all these films have been on the horror channel, and maybe White House was right to be concerned. After all, new technology is to be feared. And if I've learned anything about being a parent, it's that you can't police your kids 24 hours a day. Certainly my parents monitored what I watched very closely, and yet I'd still managed to see four of the films I just mentioned, and The Exorcist, and The Clockwork Orange, both films that weren't actually labelled as video nasties but were still banned, by the time I was 16. I'm also pretty sure that, other than Evil Dead, Exorcist and Clockwork Orange, I wouldn't even have been interested in seeing the others without the ban, but it became something of a badge of honour in the playground to have seen these films. 
But I'm more interested in television censorship than movies. The various different TV networks have all censored or outright banned relatively innocuous episodes of otherwise harmless television series for reasons best known to themselves. Sometimes this is due to that episode being particularly strong or dealing with themes not normal for that show. Sometimes it's a sensitive political issue, other times plain stupidity regarding scheduling. Mary Whitehouse would stick her nose into television scheduling too, getting Doctor Who toned down from the early Tom Baker years with her outrage, and regularly complaining about anything that didn't fit in with her standards of decency. For whatever reason, here's a number of shows I know have been banned or censored over the years. It's also interesting to note that most of these are imported shows. British TV tended to err American series in much earlier time slots than they erred in the US, with the majority of them being considered kid-vid entertainment, especially if it was science fiction. Others would err in more adult slots. Magnum P.I., Quantum Leap, Twin Peaks, The X-Files and The Equalizer all erred after 8pm for the duration of their initial runs, but largely imported US telefantasy was broadcast in a family time slot. For the most part, this caused no issues, but some shows really weren't designed to err as early evening tea-time entertainment. Obviously, as a caveat, I say that these are all shows I had an interest in watching, and as such, this is in no way a comprehensive list. There may have been a ton of episodes of Heart to Heart that were censored, but I rarely watched that, so I wouldn't know. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is first on the list, largely because it was never banned per se. Buffy started airing in the UK on cable station Sky One, but was later picked up by BBC Two. After a noble start, the pilot erred on anti-Beeb at 8pm in the evening. The series was quickly granted a 6.45pm time slot on a Wednesday or a Thursday, I forget which. Anyone who's ever watched Buffy will realise why this is problematic. Whilst the show was populated with pretty people and had funny dialogue, it was also quite violent, and although it was never gratuitous, the violence was often used to highlight a point or emphasise a character moment. The BBC couldn't handle this and promptly took the scissors to a number of episodes. To be fair, Auntie Beeb did listen to its audience and scheduled a late-night repeat on Friday nights, Saturday morning. These repeats inadvertently gave the show a completely different audience, as numerous adults, stumbling home from the pub, discovered the show. Spin-off Angel fared even worse. Auntie Beeb were outbid for Angel by Channel 4, who, having learned nothing from butchering Babylon 5, scheduled Angel in an even earlier time slot, 6pm on a Friday evening. This time slot incurred heavy editing, some shows even being hacked at with a rusty blade for content. Channel 4 gave up with the show after Season 2, after being far too stupid to realise they'd bought a show for a teen and adult audience and then scheduled it when kids could watch. Neither Buffy nor Angel had episodes outright banned, though, which puts them one step ahead of the six million dollar man. Outraging Ballandery is not a good 1976 episode of Six Mill. It's not a terrible episode by any means, but it did touch upon a hot-button topic of the time, the Troubles. The issues revolving the Northern Ireland situation are complex, and not something I'm about to get into here, but there was a period in the 70s and the 80s where the television networks thought the best way to deal with any kind of problem such as this was to bury their head in the sand and hoped it went away. As I said, this episode isn't bad. In fact, it's quite entertaining in its badness. 
The episode features a plethora of truly bad Irish accents and features a massive goof at its heart that international celebrity Steve Austin, our erstwhile bionic man who, remember, is a very famous astronaut, could embark upon a political hot potato like this and pretend he's not affiliated with the US government is bludgeoning the suspension of disbelief to death, especially when we recall that in addition to being a famous astronaut, he's also a US Air Force colonel. Despite taking place in fictional Ballandery, stock footage of real UK army troops is used to depict military manoeuvres, and a real Irish flag can be seen in some scenes, which would be fine if the situation itself was treated with any complexity. But by this point in the series, the show had long since given up on even attempting to have their audience think for themselves. In addition, the plot itself is bobbins. Steve, in his role of international do-gooder, interferes in the political situation of a foreign country when an American diplomat's wife is kidnapped and threatened with death by terrorist organisation the IBA. That probably passed a subtlety in the episode's writer's room. Trying to tackle a serious and complex issue like this in The Six Million Dollar Man is like setting an episode of The A-Team in Burma. However, Six Mill did have a very young audience, and featuring a topic such as this for a storyline, simplistic though it was presented, may have provoked debate amongst its young fans, and that would, as far as I was concerned, have been a good thing. We would never find out if that debate would happen. After being screened once in the southern areas of the UK, the episode was withdrawn from transmission. The reason given was that the terrorist group, as mentioned, was called the IBA, which at the time stood for the Independent Broadcasting Association, a branch of ITV who erred the show, but it's pretty obvious why it was really withdrawn. This is a rather silly banning. There's nothing offensive in it, other than its surface dealing of a complex issue. And although I can't confirm this, I presume it was shown, uncut and unedited, when Sci-Fi UK aired the series in the early 1990s. The exact same issue would plague a 1989 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, entitled The High Ground. The High Ground uses another planet as its political allegory rather than a fictitious country, and does it moderately well. When Dr. Crusher is kidnapped by a terrorist who wishes to provoke Federation interference in his planet's political turmoil, it's up to the crew of the Enterprise to make a stand. Given that this is Picard rather than Kirk, Picard's idea of making a stand is to run away and not get involved, but it's a fairly action-packed episode for the next generation anyway. It's not quite as simplistic as the Six Million Dollar Man, although calling the lead terrorist Finn is almost as on the nose, and its entire message can be boiled down to terrorism's bad, okay, which I wouldn't have known if Star Trek wasn't here to tell me. Like all good science fiction, it can be read not only as one thing. Some have called it a parallel to the Troubles in Northern Ireland, but to others it's an analogue to the Israeli-Palestinian situation, to others still an American Revolution allegory. However, the reason for the banning seems to be that there was an Act of Parliament passed that made it illegal to broadcast anything that could be seen as glorifying or supporting terrorism. This act was later brought into disrepute and was subsequently repealed, but caused problems for the BBC in its initial transmission when Data's line about Irish reunification in 2024 was considered a bit too hot for TV. Instead of cutting the line, the BBC banned the episode, although it was aired on cable and released on video uncut. BBC finally aired the episode unedited in 2007. To be fair, I can see the BBC's point in regards to that line. It can be interpreted as suggesting that terrorism works, but editing that one line rather than obliterating the entire show may have been a better alternative. I'd have heard it uncut, but I'm not a TV scheduler. 
The High Ground was not the only Next Generation episode to be censored. First season show Conspiracy was also heavily cut on its BBC earrings and the original Star Trek also suffered at the hands of the censors. Star Trek was first broadcast in the United Kingdom on 12th of July 1969 on BBC One as a replacement for Doctor Who at 5.15pm on a Saturday evening. Proving to be a ratings winner, the show would graduate to a later time slot and earned Miri in 1970. Miri, a first season episode of the show, is a taut and dramatic episode concerning a planet full of children that are in fact 300 years old. It is revealed that all the adults, or grups, all died of a disease and, of course, the Enterprise crew contract the malady. The depiction of the illness, big red and blue blotches all over the skin, may be considered a bit much, especially when seen in black and white, as this episode would have been upon its original erring. But Miri is an enjoyable trek with good performances and a script that is about something. Kirk's obvious flirting with Miri, ostensibly 300, but stated in the script as being 14 years of age, albeit played by 18-year-old Kim Darby, may be a bit much for viewers who think too hard about it or are looking to be offended, but if you can check your modern sensibilities at the door on that issue, it's a good slice of track. However, the episode would receive a number of complaints about its content and would cause the BBC to review the entire series, leading to Miri not being broadcast again until 1992. Other episodes that fell to the BBC's mighty scissors were Plato's Stepchildren, Whom Gods Destroy and The Empath. A form letter from Sheila Cundy of the BBC and sent out to fans in the 1970s stated, After very careful consideration, a top-level decision was made not to screen the episodes entitled Empath, Sick, Whom the Gods Destroy, Sick, Plato's Stepchildren and Miri because they all dealt most unpleasantly with the already unpleasant subjects of madness, torture, sadism and disease. Plato's stepchildren being banned may have been a mercy. A rather silly third season instalment in which Spock sings and Kirk brays like a horse, I honestly don't see how this fits in with any of the above stated reasons for banning the episode. I suppose the mind control exerted by the alien race that coerces the crew into these actions could be considered sadism, but it's such a toothless and rather embarrassing segment it seems silly to ban it unless it's on grounds of good taste. Of course, Plato's Stepchildren is famous for being the first US drama show to feature an African-American woman and a Caucasian man kissing. It's highly unlikely this was the reason for the ban, as UK soap operas Emergency Ward 10 and Coronation Street had both depicted interracial romances in the early 60s, and there hadn't been riots in the streets then. It finally was heard on the BBC on December 22nd, 1993. The Empath is likewise no great loss, although it's easier to see why this one was left off the schedules. Another third season entry, the title refers to Jem, a mysterious and beautiful empathic woman who is a person of interest to a race called the Vians. Kirk, Spock and McCoy are tortured over the course of the episode on an all-black, almost stage-bound set. With all apologies to the late, great DeForest Kelly, who considered this his favourite episode, The Empath is an average instalment, and one of the few times the original Trek can be considered a bit dull. It's not an embarrassment, like a number of other third season segments, and the performances are good, it's just a very budget-conscious show, and the story doesn't really hold the interest for the full 50-minute running time. The BBC finally capitulated and aired this episode on the 5th of January 1994. Whom Gods Destroy, however, is a much sadder loss. 
On Elba 2, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are reunited with Garth of Isa, a former Starfleet captain and military genius. However, he's now in an asylum for the mentally insane, and along with Batgirl, attempts to steal the Enterprise. This is a really fun episode, largely due to Steve Inhat's performance as Garth and some quite funny dialogue from Yvonne Craig, whose inquiry, Can I blow off just one of his ears? is a comedy high point. It suffers from season three silliness at the end when we are expected to believe Spock can't tell Kirk from Garth disguised as Kirk, played to OTT perfection by Shatner, but by then it's part of the comedic value of the episode. It's possible the BBC objected to the treatment of the mentally ill as comedic buffoons, but it's more likely they objected to poor Yvonne Craig being blown up on camera. I'll admit, when I first saw the episode on video in the early 80s, that shocked me as well. You can't blow up, Batgirl! It finally aired on the BBC on January 19th, 1994. All of these banned episodes were released on video, though, in early 1983. Plato's and Gods were part of a double bill, and Miri was released with The Empath. Space Seed was released also to capitalise on the recent release of The Wrath of Khan, but Space Seed wasn't banned, so... It seems the BBC had problems with science fiction generally. Farscape aired in the UK on BBC Two, and as a consequence of its 6.45pm time slot, suffered a few edits here and there. But the third season episode Scratch and Sniff was considered far too out there for pre-Watershed entertainment. For those that are unaware, the BBC have what is considered a watershed time for more adult material. The general consensus is that anything before 9pm is suitable for all, although there are episodes of EastEnders that have tested this, and anything after 9 is generally considered anything goes. It used to be more staggered than that, with more hard-hitting material not erring until 10pm, but the F word is now allowed out mere minutes after 9, so they seem to be a, a lot looser in that regard. Scratch and Sniff has series lead John Crichton, along with Dargo, Chiana and newcomer Jewel, let loose on some pleasure planet. And when Jewel and Chiana are kidnapped by this week's aliens, it all goes pear-shaped for Dargo and John. That description really does this episode no justice. It is absolutely unqualified madness masquerading as an episode of Farscape. The series could get pretty out there on occasion. Witness Revenging Angel, a fourth season episode that is a literal Looney Tunes cartoon, but this one is just a sensory overload. It's frenetically edited, incredibly colourful, cheesily scored and OTT from every conceivable angle. It features drug use, S&M, sex and actor Ben Browder in stockings and high heels. Of course, for all these reasons and probably more, the BBC just couldn't cut this episode like they had with others and instead threw up their hands and aired it on a Saturday night at 11.20pm. It's far too comical to be taken seriously, and some people may be put off by its rather obvious weirdness, but I know I wouldn't have been offended if they'd heard this at 6.45 as usual. It's not just the BBC that have problems with science fiction, and erring it in silly time slots. Channel 4 bought Babylon 5, presumably to cash in on that lucrative early evening market the Beeb had all sewn up in the 90s, and promptly scheduled it in a 6pm slot. Almost from the get-go, episodes were edited with all the skill of a four-year-old being asked to gut a fish. Some scenes were even rendered nonsensical or made worse by implying something completely different had happened. However, the first season episode TKO was considered too brutal for a 6pm slot. 
TKO centres around the disgraced boxer, Walker Smith, who comes to Babylon 5 to compete in a boxing tournament because, you know, as we explore the galaxy we're going to find that all alien races partake in Earth sports. There's also a subplot about First Officer Susan Ivanova mourning her dead father. To be fair, this subplot is the best thing about the episode. Given undeserved cachet because it was not transmitted in first run, TKO was finally screened by Channel 4 at 11pm the week before Season 2 started, and it's fair to say it's actually quite risible, but that's not really a suitable reason for banning it. Whilst boxing tends to err in the UK in later time slots than other sports, and our televisual issues do tend to be more based around violence than sex, someone should have pointed out to Channel 4 that this was fictional. No alien races were hurt in the making of this episode. It's one of the stupidest bannings on the list. Homegrown entertainment tends to get more of a free ride, although it too has suffered at the hands of the censors. UFO had a number of shows that were problematic to ITV who screened it. The series, created by Jerry Anderson, tried to be more adult in how it dealt with certain storylines, but to ITV and the world at large, Anderson was that puppet guy, and so UFO was treated, if not as a kid's show, then as not really something for adults. So imagine ITV's surprise when a number of UFO episodes dealt with adult themes. A question of priorities centres around the death of a child. The square triangle deals with an adulterous affair. The responsibility seat has actress Jane Merrow stripped down to her underwear in an effort to seduce Commander Straker. However, two episodes more than any other cause problems for ITV schedulers. Timelash features a very sci-fi plot revolving around aliens being able to move around in a single moment of time. To counter this, Straker and his first lady, Virginia Lake, are seen shooting up a drug that increases the metabolism, enabling them to essentially speed up and operate within this time bubble. Despite being one of UFO's single best episodes and one of my favourite hours of television, these scenes of Lake and Straker essentially shooting up to positive effect was deemed too strong for UFO's regular time slot and it was rarely broadcast before 11pm. Oddly, when UFO was screened in my ITV region, Granada, in the late 1980s, they obviously didn't get the memo and it was shown at 1.30 in the afternoon. I remember watching it wondering why I'd never seen this episode before, although I don't typically remember UFO being rerun a great deal in the 70s. Timelash is typical of UFO's schizophrenic nature, coming as it did at the tail end of the optimistic 60s and entering the fatalistic 70s. A number of episodes of UFO are trippy and have downbeat endings, but none more so than the other UFO episode that caused schedulers to reach for the headache pills, The Long Sleep. This episode was the story of Catherine Fraser, played by Man About the House sex pop Tessa Wyatt, who, whilst bumming around London as a hippie chick, meets up with former med student now turned busker Tim. Whilst being all carefree and drug addled, the duo stumble across a bomb planted by the aliens, which leads to Tim falling to his death. Catherine wanders down the road to escape the aliens, is almost raped, and is then run over by Ed Straker. Ten years later, in 1984, she wakes up from her coma and Ed, ever the sympathetic ear, immediately starts cross-examining her for the location of the aliens. To be fair, The Long Sleep is a seriously off-kilter show. Catherine's flashbacks are all in sepia tones, except when she's on her LSD trip, and then everything is coloured filters, except, bizarrely, the scenes where she actually sees the UFO landing, which is portrayed as normal shot film footage. The SFX guys obviously weren't kept in the loop, but this 
plays into the overall weird feel the episode has. It's probably the heavy drug use that kept this episode in the late night schedules, but there is also a death, on screen, not a cutaway, of a body disintegrating into a skeleton, an attempted rape, some lovely gallows humour, and Catherine being run down by the supposed star of the show. Add up all these unsavoury elements and ITV probably didn't know what to do. Unlike TKO, however, these are both good episodes and well worth staying up late for. The Professionals was also an ITV show concerning lunk-headed CI5 agents Bodie and Doyle, brutally and beautifully sent up in the Comic Strip Presents episode, The Bullshitters. One episode, Klansman, has never been broadcast in the UK, despite being sold abroad. As such, I've only ever seen a few clips on YouTube. But this episode, which centres around a British hate group called Empire, features a very unsympathetic portrayal of lead character Bodhi, who is clearly depicted as a bigot, and there is some really quite brutal violence, even by today's standards, let alone in 1978, when the episode was originally scheduled to err. Whilst it's undeniable that the subject matter of the show is strong, even from the few clips I've managed to see, without seeing the full episode in context, I don't feel qualified to comment if it is deserving of its ban, although the various professionals' fan sites I consulted seem to feel it's one of the more hard-hitting and interesting episodes of the show. Whether that actually means it's any good or not, I obviously cannot testify. The Professionals was a British attempt to marry the gritty, realistic tone of the Sweeney with the glossy, buddy cop feel of US import Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch debuted on BBC One in a post-Watershed time slot in December of 1976, just three months after the USA. It was an immediate smash hit, topping the ratings for the Beeb and making rock stars out of actors Paul Michael Glazer and David Soule. To this day, Glazer is still warmly welcomed over here when he visits, and Soule now lives here, owning a small theatre in London's West End. Despite being carbon dated in the 70s, the popularity of the show was such that it was still erring at a prime time slot on BBC One in 1986, seven years after its cancellation, pulling in over 8 million viewers. It was still running on the BBC well into the early 1990s. One episode, though, The Fix, from the show's first season, was never transmitted by the BBC, despite these multiple reruns. The plot concerns Hutchie's girlfriend this week being hunted by her ex, a drug kingpin. To locate her, the kingpin, played by Robert Lozier, injects Hutch with heroin so that the strung-out copper will turn her over. It's actually a quite tense episode, even today. Soul gives a convincing performance, and the bromance between Starsky and Hutch is at its finest as Starsky helps his buddy through the worst of the withdrawal. The scenes are still powerful, but I don't really feel it's bannable. The show erred in a post-9pm time slot anyway and was never really aimed at children, UK broadcasters having no problems with a cop show being for adults. It was just silly sci-fi that was for the kiddies. The episode finally aired on Channel 4 as part of the Starsky and Hutch night in May 1999. The next ones are more oddities than anything else. I couldn't find any information on these being banned or suppressed, but tonally they are all a lot stronger than other episodes in their series. Well, almost all. First up, a seventh season episode of Magnum P.I. fell afoul of the schedulers when Frank Sinatra guest starred, although presumably the ban was nothing to do with old Blue Eyes. 
in Laura, Sinatra plays Mike Doheny, a retired New York detective in Hawaii on the trail of a scumbag who murdered and raped his granddaughter. Thomas Magnum ends up helping. It's an incredibly dark episode of the series, grim and unrelenting, although there's a little bit too much Phil Collins in it for my taste. You think it's going to be a bit of 80s cheese with some Sinatra stunt casting, but Sinatra apparently didn't get that memo and turns in a heartfelt performance. The scene where he breaks down at his granddaughter's grave at the end of the episode is remarkably affecting. There is still some trademarked magnum humour, primarily from TC in this case, but on the whole this feels more like an episode of Miami Vice than Magnum P.I., which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Men were men in Magnum, and Doheny fits that archetype, taking old-fashioned cowboy vengeance out on the killers of his granddaughter. And there's even a lovely touch of ambiguity in a scene where Doheny tracks down the first of the two men. Magnum arrives just as this murderer and rapist of children has had a chat with a bus and come off a little worse for wear, and it's implied, although never stated, that Doheny may have pushed him. Magnum P.I. did occasionally walk some dark paths, but this is probably the grittiest episode of the series, an outright revenge thriller plotline. The general tone of this episode, Sinatra perhaps making up for missing out on playing Dirty Harry Callahan, probably made this unsuitable for ITV's regular 8pm time slot for Magnum, and it was shunted to after the news at 10.35pm. In this particular instance, I think ITV made the right decision. Doheny's description of what they did to his granddaughter is sickening, and there is a tiny bit of swearing, nothing compared to television nowadays, but problematic for the time that it was filmed. For the curious, the episode is number 7 on Crack.com's best Magnum episodes ever, and number 8 on Magnum Mania. Just as grim... Death Mask, a third season episode of The Incredible Hulk, features regular guest star and future major dad Gerald McCraney playing a police detective in Prestonville. I have no idea if Prestonville is a real place. He's investigating the death of numerous women in the area around Prestonville College, deaths they think may be attributable to a serial killer. Librarian and newcomer to the town, David Brent, which is funny to viewers of The Office, is the main suspect and is arrested. They don't trust outsiders, you see. Outside, tempers are about to explode as an angry mob surge upon the police station. This is a moody, atmospheric episode, and like the Magnum episode before, it was very tonally different to other episodes in the series, making it difficult to edit to make it fit the Hulk's regular 7.30 time slot. The show is incredibly well lit by the director of photography, and McCraney gives a superbly sweaty and twitchy performance in the scene where it is just he and Bill Bixby. There's some great irony in the writing as well, with McCraney's character saying to David, you don't know what it's like to have a monster in you. As usual with Hulk episodes, there's a theme, in this case women's equality, which is very well handled, and it's remarkably tense given it's such a cheap episode of the show, all filmed on a back lot, or, for the majority of its running time, simply being Bixby and McCraney in one room. I first saw this when Granada repeated the show in 1988, and it aired at 1am, and again it's an episode that, whilst tame today, would have been a problem to air in its regular slot. The book Rogers in the 25th century episode Space Vampire is a weird one. Erd with no problems in its early evening Saturday night time slot on ITV in 1980 and included in the sticker book, so it's a widely memorable episode. The BBC skipped it completely when they reran the series in 1989 and 1994. A further rerun in 1996 may have seen the episode restored to the package, but I don't recall watching that particular repeat season. Space Vampire is typical book Rogers. It's campy but fun. I can't really see why it's banned. It's got lots of Aaron Gray in spandex. Why would you want to ban that? 
Finally, a rather silly entry into the censorship debate. 80s action classic Erwolf had two episodes that only aired in a late night slot on initial transmission. Erwolf was the adventures of a Mach 1 Plus attack helicopter and its pilot who had stolen the chopper in return for the US government finding his brother Sinjin who was an MIA in Vietnam. Condemned from that show's second season is a fun actioner in which Dr. Rudy Wells from The Six Million Dollar Man is trapped on an island with a deadly virus which has been loosed. Erwolf and pilot Stringfellow Hawk and Caitlin O'Shaughnessy are dispatched but meet up with a Russian crew who are also interested in the virus. It's a standard tale of enemies being forced to work together and learning that maybe they aren't so different after all, enlivened by a lot of Erwolf action and the audience wondering where the hell Ernest Borgnine was this week. I can't see any reason for this to be dispatched to the late night slot. The other late night Erwolf episode is more interesting. First season episode Echoes from the Past has Hawk been deceived into thinking he's been in a coma for ten years after a helicopter crash. He's introduced to his brother Sinjin, who was rescued by other leads, Dominic Santini and Archangel, but who were killed freeing him. With no reason to keep Erwolf's location a secret, Hawk gives it up, only to learn the doctors, nurses and Sinjin are Libyan agents. Libyans. This is actually a pretty fun episode of the show. Whilst it seemed to be an open secret that Hawk had Erwolf, very few episodes centred around people trying to steal it back. But what makes this interesting is the reason it was given a late night slot. To convince Hawk he was ten years in the future, the Libyans mock up a news story of Princess Diana and Prince Charles getting divorced, which was not only hysterical, but probably seemed very unlikely in 1984 when this episode was made. Why ITV would think this offensive is beyond me. What makes the censorship of this episode doubly baffling is despite erring late night, ITV cut out the offending scenes. There was absolutely no need for this episode to be censored in the first place, but when you cut out the material you're censoring it for, erring it late at night seems largely pointless. Erwolf has been screened numerous times over the years, including a networked rerun in 1996, so I've no idea if this episode was ever shown uncut or not, but it was released to video in 1985, cut together with another episode to make a straight-to-DVD movie, Erwolf 2 The Search. I'm sure there are many others, but these are the ones that piqued my interest and made me wonder why these episodes were singled out. Censorship is still a fun topic for me, but ultimately a strange one. For example, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was not released in the UK uncut until the recent Blu-ray box set, but I've had an unbutchered version on my DVD shelf for years. I like knowing why things have been banned, but I actually prefer making up my own mind about what I should be allowed to watch. Uh, I received a fair bit of feedback on the uh, the last episode of Palace of Blitter and Delights that I did. Mark Taylor Facebook messaged me, so I'm not going to read the whole thing because I always consider that if they Facebook you, it may be considered a more private message than emailing. If they email, I consider that they want it actually read on the show. He thanks me for giving him a shout-out, which was I was very happy to do. Mark was one of the first people to get back to me on the first episode of Palace, so... Uh, I was happy to give you that shout-out, Mark. He mentions that, you know, he'd not seen Moonlight in Magnum or the Hulk, but heartily approved of Firefly and Galactica choices, and that my new Who episode was well-argued. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. Time Lash, which he watched on YouTube, has made him want to go out and buy the UFO box set. I heartily encourage anyone with an interest in UK telefantasy or 60s or 70s science fiction to give UFO a go. It really is a, a very underrated 
series. Uh, he also offers suggestions. He would love to see a classic Trek episode or a classic Doctor Who episode of Palace of Glittering Delight. I have, Mark, you will be happy to know, mapped out a classic Trek episode where I will be running down my top ten Treks. I've wrote down the titles of the episodes. I just have to get round to actually writing and recording the episode. But it's certainly on the docket, as is a defence of Revenge of the Sith. And I still want to do that War of the Worlds episode, but that's taking a bit more prep than I had anticipated. I have to reread the book and watch the film, and that's a bit more complicated. Um, in regards to Who, Who True Freaks, uh, as devised and hosted by the lovely Sean Engel, which you can find on this here network, uh, will very soon be doing episodes where people are going to be picking the favourite episodes of the show for discussion. So once we've got past the covering an episode from each Doctor, we're going to start doing people pick. So I'm going to pick my episode has already been picked and I've pitched it to Sean. I presume regulars like Stephen Lacey and the Irredeemable Shag and Hope Moulinex will also be picking their favourite episodes. It'd be nice to have some different people on there. I'm sure Thomas GJ will be picking one and Luke Giaconetta. So it would be nice to have people who not don't normally guest on the show along to pick their favourite episodes. But I'm sure, you know, Bill Robinson and Chris Tyler, I'm sure all of those guys will be doing an episode devoted to one of their favourite shows. So that probably scratches that itch. But thank you very much uh, for emailing in, Mark. It was very... Oh, Facebooking. It was very much appreciated. Uh, the next feedback for Palace was from Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin hosts the Supermates broadcast with his his wife, I almost said his sister then, his wife, Cindy Franklin. It's a great show. Uh, you really should go and check it out. Very interesting husband and wife dynamic to that show. Very good. Top Telly Delights, Chris says, hi Andy. Hi Chris. I thoroughly enjoyed your latest Palace episode. That Magnum episode was quite a shocker at our house and Magnum was a weekly staple mostly due to my mum's huge thing for Tom Selleck. <laughs> I think all mums had something for Tom Selleck. I was relieved when he came back next season, but in hindsight it was a bold move to kill him off and perhaps should have been left in place. I haven't really watched much Magnum in my adult years and need to rectify that at some point. Yeah, the thing you've got to realise with Magnum is, I mean, I, uh, there is a certain nostalgic love I have for it. Uh, I grew up watching, it's one of those shows I started watching when it first aired and I watched it right through and it ran a considerable amount of time eight years is a long time when you say, I think I was eight when it started, something like that 16 when it finished it is a product of the 80s there is no just getting away from that the action is very 80s the Mike Post Pete Carpenter score is excellent but it is every other Mike Post Pete Carpenter score you've ever heard, for me it's looking at the overall show and the fact that they have continuing plots and continuing characters that make it stand out. But watching an episode in isolation is still an entertaining endeavour, as long as you go into it knowing that... I'm not suggesting it was ahead of its time in terms of how it's made. It isn't. It's an 80s TV action-adventure show. But it's a fun one, and I think well worth revisiting if you've got the time to watch eight seasons of television. Chris continues, it's been a while since I watched Buffy or Angel, but Cindy and I binged watched it back in the early noughties when we were up late with our firstborn. <laughs> I recall thinking Moonlighting was fun during the first few years, but the show ran out of steam when Willis and Seth Shepard hooked up. Um, yeah, see, I have mixed feelings about seasons three and four of Moonlighting. It's, it's one of those things, Sybil Shepard's pregnancy was nobody's fault. 
really. But and then her doctor told her she couldn't work because she was having twins. So that's nobody's fault. But it did prove that Bruce Willis could carry a project on his own, which presumably led to him landing Die Hard and the subsequent film career. The first two or three, the first two seasons are the best. Uh, it does go a little off the boil when it's just Bruce and Sybil just talking to each other over the phone because that's all they could get Sybil Shepherd to do. And the fifth season, they try and get back to what it was in the early years, but it, it's never quite as good, unfortunately. Chris continues, I was into Farscape earlier on, but eventually missed too many episodes to make any sense of it. Yeah, that, that is a flaw with Farscape. Firefly is on my to-watch list, as I was gifted the entire series back at Christmas. I've heard good things. Same for the new Battlestar, although I'm not too keen on bleak sci-fi. You may not like Battlestar Galactica then, Chris. That's all I'm going to say. I, um, as I've said before, I think, I did read a review of Galactica which was very favourably received over here. I know there's quite a lot of reticence to it in certain quarters of fandom, but I did read a review that I thought summed it up perfectly. It's a British science fiction television show that was inadvertently made by an American television network. And I, I would agree with that creation. All, or most, of our televised science fiction is bleak. Blake Seven's bleak. Doctor Who isn't. Doctor Who's ultimately quite optimistic, but some of its storylines are bleak. And then there's stuff like the you know Day at the Triffids. John Wyndham's work is always quite quite bleak. The Kraken and Chucky, which was made into a, a kids' TV show, of all things. A lot of the BBC science fiction can be a bit dystopian, but you know if you don't like bleak sci-fi, I, I'm not going to recommend you you watch Galactica. I think it's ultimately hopeful the way the series ends, but again the finale to the show has an awful lot of people who don't like it. I don't agree with them. I think that the ending to the series is, is quite in keeping with the show as a whole. But, you know, if you watch it, you'd have to make your own mind upon the ending. The ending is very divisive, but at least for me, it had an ending, which I consider a good thing. Chris concludes, as I've told you before, my family are recent converts to the Whovian way of life, and I enjoyed every bit of Who we've discovered in the last year or so. The Incredible Hulk, however, is one that I know. What a great episode. You hit the nail on the head. The off-formula shows are the standout. This two-parter, the first Mystery Man, those are the ones that really are memorable. But you can't go wrong with any episode. Oh, I don't know about that, Chris. I don't think um, Babalow is any good. <laughs> I look forward to more of these shows. I think the freewheeling format is fun and it offers you a chance to do whatever you want. Well, thank you, Chris. I will put your name down in the um, the positive column for doing more Palace of Glittering delights. Luke Giaconetti emailed. Always, always nice to hear from Luke. Genre TV are the only podcast you'll hear covering both Galactica and Moonlighting. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm sure there's other eclectic shows out there. Andy Leyland, the one-man sci-fi TV Wikipedia article. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, Luke, but all right, I'll take that as a compliment. Hey, man, just finished listening to the second proper episode of Palace of Glittering Delights, which is a delightful title, because it reminds me of a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> yeah, a camp Chinese restaurant, which I quite like. I quite like the idea of a camp Chinese restaurant. Chinese restaurants are camp, though, aren't they? Let's be honest, all those lanterns and joviality. Glad you like the title. I, don't, I, I wasn't sure about the title, but, you know, I think I stole it from Matt Radcliffe. I don't know that I could puzzle out a list of my top ten favourite TV series and then my favourites of each, so I applaud you for the effort. Some of your choices had me nodding in agreement, while some had me shaking my head and shouting at the MP3 player. So in other words, great job. 
well, thank you, Luke. I always think that's a good show where you can agree with people and then not agree with them within the same show. I, I, that does make for an interesting. I do want to say these these aren't necessarily my top ten favourite shows, rather my my favourite episodes. Obviously, Star Trek wasn't even mentioned in that top ten list for for obvious reasons. Neither was Veronica Mars or Batman and Superman the animated series. All of those I would consider favourites. Press Gang. I mentioned there was no comedy in there, so the episode of the young ones that would have got in there would be the one where they, they go on University Challenge and the Black Adder with Bob uh, on the brilliant one with Tom Baker in it. They would if I did a comedy one, they'd probably be in there as well. Maybe an episode of Red Dwarf. I do have a fondness for Starsky and Hutch. I, I freely admit that maybe more nostalgia than anything else. And the Prisoner. I think I did mention The Prisoner, but The Prisoner would certainly be one of my favourite TV shows. So those were my favourite episodes, generally, but maybe I wouldn't consider Moonlighting, for example, a favourite show overall. I think there was there was three seasons of Moonlighting that weren't particularly good compared to two and a half that were. So, you know. But I, I appreciate, you, appreciate what you're saying. Your choice of Dalek for Doctor Who, continues Luke, is one I wholeheartedly agreed with. I think that I may have seen one or both of the Peter Cushing movies as a kid, but I came familiar with Doctor Who throughout the new series. The episode was a real introduction to the Daleks. Eccleston's performance in this episode is inspired. The bit where he begins to talk to the still-hidden Dalek is great. He transitions from compassionate outrage over a victimised alien to utter disbelief to outright panic in the span of about 30 seconds. A great episode all round. Over on Battlestar Galactica, 33 is an odd choice simply because of how early it happens in the series, but I approve of this selection as well. Before the show got so deeply involved with its own mythology, this episode perfectly demonstrates the story engine of the ragtag fugitive fleet. It also addresses the elephant in the room. How do you fight a foe who doesn't tire, does not need food and water, and can pursue you endlessly? Uh, Of all of them... Galactica was the one I deliberated about most. 33 is a perfect standalone episode, but there are many, many good ones. Just in the first season alone, the, the episode where Starbuck crash lands on the planet and has to jury rig a Cylon Raider to get her off the planet, all the while with a broken knee, is a fantastic episode. There's um, another really good one where later on in the series were Apollo. The, the fleet are running out of fuel and they discover a, a Cylon fuel depot and they have to do a raid on that to get the fuel that they need for the entire fleet but Starbucks out of commission because of the broken knee that she sustained in the earlier episode and Apollo's got to lead the fleet Apollo's not considered as good a pilot as Starbuck and that's a great episode there's a, an early second season one that's really good where a Galactican raider ostensibly crashes into um, a, a Galactica landing bay but in actuality, it's a plot to get a bunch of robotic Cylons onto Galactica to blow the ship up from inside. And that's a really good one. And there's just so many good episodes of that show that I think it's great. I know it divides people, but I, for me, it's one of the best science fiction television shows in recent years and certainly the best one in this past decade. And the Incredible Hulk continues, Luke, how can you not be charmed by this show? I do not recall this specific story, but I watched the show lots in reruns as a young man, and when I watch it now, I'm still impressed by how much it squeezes out of its formula week in and week out. The three Whedon shows are where our paths diverge. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's perfectly okay. My then girlfriend, now wife, used to watch Buffy and Angel every week when we were in college. I found them both to be different levels of insufferable, smug and self-satisfied, developed around quips which played out more like fan fiction than dramatic television. The last bit much more true about Buffy than Angel. The production values and makeup effects were decent, considering the admittedly small budgets they had, but the fight choreography and direction remains very poor. I suspect this has to do with my love of Japanese live-action sci-fi shows, which routinely have frenetic, tightly choreographed action scenes rather than sloppily cut-together music video-style fights with obvious stunt doubles. Well, I addressed this, didn't I, when I was talking about um, the episode that I picked, Somnambulist. I deliberately mentioned that because I thought the fight scenes in that one were very well done. I don't really disagree with your your comments about the fight choreography, especially in Buffy, where it, it basically became a running gag between Angela and I when we were watching it that the minute that a fight scene would start, it was, right, get Sarah Michelle Gellar off stage and get the stunt double in. And it was always noticeable. No matter how much they tried to cover her face with blonde hair, the stunt double just had a much firmer bottom. That it was clear... And then as soon as the fight finished, wheel her off and wheel Geller back on and insert a few close-ups of Geller going, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I don't disagree with what you're saying about the fight choreography, but the stories and the characters kind of got me over that. And again, with Angel, certainly in the early days, Barry and Az was at least attempting to do his own stunts. He would stop doing a lot of them as the show went on. Some of that wasn't his fault. My understanding is in the fifth season, he'd blown his knee out playing hockey. And once you know that, certainly early in the first season Angel spends a lot of time sitting down and so there were stunt doubles that had to be used for him just walking away because of that so some of that's not his fault but yeah some of the fight choreography is a little bit lacking in places Luke continues I find Buffy as a general rule to be unwatchable Angel was better it had some good bits on it you could tell it was the B show because they did more during things such as the last season where they took over Wolfram and Hart but I used to tease my wife calling Angel either Morbius or Hannibal King and there was too much lazy writing the entire art with the evil goddess enslaving the cast was overly obvious and don't get me started on the utterly botched attempt at Mexican wrestling in the final season I don't disagree with the goddess story I think Angel dips quite a lot in the latter half of the third season some of that was off camera problems off stage problems the fourth season the overall story arc's a little bit iffy personally though I think the fifth season's great other than that Mexican wrestling episode which is yes absolutely appalling Luke continues I do have to admit though smile time made me laugh and further admits breaking out the phrase we little puppet man on occasion you mentioned that folks tend to either like Firefly or get turned off due to the rabid fan base. I'm in neither party. I tried watching the show on DVD and found it a complete and utter chore. It's a very derivative and earlier show, the anime Outlaw Star. So much so that in the pilot, when the mysterious box is brought on the ship, I said to my wife, there's a girl in that box. And sure enough, there was. The first episode of Outlaw Star had exactly the same gag in it. After that, it was just a failure of the show to engage me on any level. The feature film Serenity may be the most overrated film I've ever watched. See, by contrast, I think Serenity's awesome. But that's just me. But, you know, c'est vive la différence, I believe the French say. But these are just my opinions. One of the great aspects of modern geek chic culture is we have lots and lots of choices and we can enjoy what we want without negatively impacting others. Genre TV is not a zero-sum game after all. 
Magnum PI, Moonlighting, Farscape and UFO are blind spots for me. I've seen a little bit of Magnum, but not enough to talk about it intelligently. The others are blanks, although I would be surprised that folks would complain about the use of puppets in Farscape, given the usual gushing praise heaped upon work from the Jim Henson Creature Shop. That may just be over here that it was mocked for the puppets. That may not have been the same in your country, Luke. I don't know. That's just a guess on my part. I actually think you'd like UFO a lot. Luke, I think you should give that a go and see what you think. Whilst I would be sad to see Hey Kids Comics come to a close, as would I, if you want to offer us regular visits inside the palace, I'd be totally down with that. Especially if you get a free egg roll with any combination plates. (laughs) I suspect by the time it got over to you, Luke, it, it probably wouldn't be edible. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for emailing it. It's very much appreciated. The next email is a really, really good one. Ron Sadowski of the Dinner for Geeks emailed in saying that Palace of Glittering Delights was a total delight, uh, but he totally disagreed. (laughs) But that's why it's your ten favourites. Whatever happens, I hope you'll keep the palace doors open. Uh, Ron and I had a bit of back and forth, and then he got back to me with his favourites, which I was hoping people would do. Maybe I could have devoted an episode to other people's favourites. He recommended... Planet of the Apes episodes Trapped and the Good Seed. I've got all of those on DVD. Never sat down and watched them, so I'll give those two episodes a go. The Outer Limits iRobot, yeah. Uh, the Outer Limits was, was... I was very surprised Outer Limits didn't make a cut somewhere. And Twilight Zone. Thinking about it, I didn't even think about Twilight Zone, which was, was absolutely shocking to me. Logan's Run, he recommends the episode Man Out of Time, Land of the Lost, Elsewhere, Other World Rules of Attraction. Uh, I've never seen any of those three series, so cannot mention them. Uh, Doctor Who episode Blink, yes, Dalek is a great episode, but like your own description, is one that everyone who loved the Daleks over the years wanted to see, disproving the silliness of and bringing back the Daleks as the number one bad guy. But it's inside. Non-fans and people wanting to get in the show, I always recommend and have never been disappointed in the reaction Blink gets. It's also a Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat and sci-fi TV at its best. Blink is great. Blink is really good. I don't agree that Dalek is inside but maybe that's a cultural perspective difference even after it not being on the air for 15 16 years people still knew what a dalek was so it's entirely possible i can't take off those rose tinted spectacles i do love blink don't get me wrong there are many other episodes i could have picked but i just remember dalek had that impression on me when it first aired that stuck with me and every time i've watched it since i don't think it's it's suffered It's not one of those that you watched initially and thought, yeah, yeah, that's all right, that's fine. And and as you've gone over, it's not as good. I think it's held up. I was truly bothered by your love and adoration for the Galactica reboot. I found 33 to not be as interesting as you made it sound. But the whole series wasn't about was man worth saving? But how do you get rid of the highest form of parasite in the universe, humanity? Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't disagree with that. How would you get rid of that? But the original Galactica had a wonderful episode that was fun and dark and meaningful called War of the Gods Part 2. Yes, it's Part 2 of a two-parter, but I feel it stands on its own and is so fulfilling that it can be understood with the recap at the beginning. It has real emotion, lots of sci-fi, and deals with big questions like how do you follow someone who gives you what you want and what is the nature of good and evil? At this point, I will point out that Patrick McNee is always welcome on my TV and honourable mentions from the house that Jack built from the Avengers and Angels of Death from the new Avengers. Yeah, always got a love for Patrick McNee. When he showed up in James Bond, that was pretty cool as well. 
The Incredible Hulk episode sounded really good, but it reminded me of the best one I remember seeing 40 years ago. Married teams up Bixby and Mariette Hartley in a tour de force that pulls no punches and makes the Lonely Man theme really resonate at the end. Married is great. Married is really good. I prefer Prometheus, and as you said, that's as simple as that when you're picking your favourite top ten. That's what it, I wasn't saying these were the best. I was saying these were my favourites. I will concur on your UFO pick. There were a lot of really strong ones in the latter half of that series. I didn't watch. I wasn't much interested in Magnum, Moonlighting, Farscape, Buffy or Angel, so I'll let you have those without comment. I didn't watch the early episodes of X-Files because I was so into American Gothic, but mid-season cancellation of that show led me to the FBI aliens. Plenty of good episodes, but in the third season they hit the mother load. Like Blink, humour and non-linear storytelling makes Jose Chung's Outer Space an all-time television classic. Yeah, I almost considered an X-File, but I've got to be honest, it's not something that I go back to on a regular basis. If I was going to pick an X-File, I would probably go for Lee Jose Chung's a great one, Small Potatoes is a great one, the Two Tombs episode, Humbug, War of the Copracages is excellent. Um, Something I, I also didn't mention and should have was The Flash. I absolutely love The Flash. So the the fact that that completely missed the 10 was a shock to me when I listened to it back, but it's recorded by that point. I probably would have gone for the Flash episode, the Who Watches the Detectives, or Watching the Detectives. I thought it was a great one. Switching to non-genre shows like The Cops, like you did, you cheater. One you mentioned, Cracker, not the USBS, but the original UK with Coltrane and Eccleston. It's not a single bad episode, so I won't include any. I'd love to hear you do a UK cop drama about Lovejoy, Wire in the Blood, Wallander, Prime, Suspect, etc. There was, Ron, if you're a fan of, of UK grim police procedurals, I've recommended him Broad Church and Secret Smile and Prey, which was recently on Stern John Stern, but Happy Valley recently concluded on BBC One. I think it was six or seven episodes. I forget which. Well worth checking out. Bleak as hell, but worth watching, especially if your only knowledge of Steve Pemberton is from the League of Gentlemen. He's he's really good in it. It's an excellent UK bleak cop drama that I recommend. David Caruso's short-lived series, Michael Hayes, Ron Continues, was a phenomenal show about a New York ex-cop turns district attorney. In the episode called Slaves, we were asked a question, what is the difference between white slavery, prostitutes, and illegal sweatshop workers, and what are you willing to do about it? Powerful TV. I've never even heard of that one. I don't know if it got shown over here. I didn't have time for CSI, Ron Continues, but when I caught the episode called Gentle Gentle, it might be the best hour of television drama ever. I doubt that any good husband or father could watch it and not truly feel the impact of the story. The only problem with this is it's so good, nothing else in the series ever compared. You mentioned The Equaliser. One episode that stuck out in my mind was called The Lockbox, an infamous episode starring Adam Ant. So violent, so good, CBS refused to rerun it. Honourable mentions to the cop detective genre are Nine Dragons from Hawaii Five-0, The Shooter from the first season of Hunter, Aftershock from Law and Order, and any episode of Easy Street. I've, I used to watch the original Hawaii Five-0, but I don't remember any individual episode. Hunter, I used to enjoy a great deal. Hunter and McCall. Law and Order, I've never watched. No, and I don't even know what Easy Street is. The next to last show is to embody all the great dramedies of the 90s and on. Ali McBeal, Boston Legal, Due South, Picket Fences. Northern Exposure played out what could be done on TV. 
like Moonlighting a few years earlier, it would break the fourth wall or change point of view and narrative styles. But unlike Moonlighting, didn't feel frivolous. It was about life and death, love and change and people and how we are all the same and unique in our own way. Bordering on genre is the episode of The Body in Question, where history may be rewritten and what happened to Napoleon after he was exiled because of a person found frozen in ice. Great writing, great acting, great questions, bring this one to the top of a show that had many great episodes. Yeah, I loved Northern Exposure. Again, I've not watched it since it originally aired, but I did enjoy it when I watched it. Let me finish up with a show you gave honourable mention to. The Prisoner is a great series that suffers from being in the 1960s, being British and wanting an American audience, and a star who's popular enough to do whatever he wants. But although there are gems and all over good throughout, I have an A&E VHS tape I pull out about once a year and rewatch. It contains three episodes, Checkmate, The Chimes of Big Ben, and the one I love best, A, B and C. All excellent choices. I love The Prisoner. I mean... You can argue what you're saying there about it. It's a British show, but wants an American audience. You can argue that about all of the ITC shows of that time. UFO has an American lead with a view to selling it to America, because that's where the money was. Same with Space 1999. Same for The Protectors, I think, with Robert Vaughn. Same with The Persuaders, with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. They, a lot of these probably only got greenlit as long as they were considered commercially viable to sell to syndication in America, which is where Lou Grade made his money. I kind of take your point, but at least with The Prisoner, it still felt like it was a British genre show. Patrick McGowan was a big enough star in America due to Danger Man, which I think was called Secret Agent Man when it was syndicated, was so he didn't have to employ an American lead which was one of the things that felt a bit off maybe about UFO and, and 1999 but I don't that doesn't really bother me I mean I grew up with television from all over the world because that's what was shown stuff from Australia was shown when I was a kid stuff from Japan stuff from America stuff from Britain it was all just thrown into the melting pot that was UK television so the fact that it's a British show with an American lead or an American show with a British lead like the Equalizer was or even a, a British show with a view to being sold to an American audience I don't really mind as long as the, it's good the only one of them that's really egregious for me is the late Jerry Anderson entry called Space Precinct which I thought was trying too hard to aim at an American audience but you know Prisoner's excellent we have no we have no disagreement about the greatness of the prisoner. All the elements are there, he continues, are we to get to leave the village, if only in a dream. A mystery to solve, what was he selling to, and number six is wondering what's happening. Sci-fi with a machine to see someone's dreams, but best of all, it's two character studies. Number two is a man so desperate he will risk everything to beat his fate, and number six, a man of such single will, he wants his freedom so bad he dreams of gaining it over and over again. It's a great ending where the hero not only wins, but completely defeats his enemy and walks away even though he is unconscious. Rod also mentioned Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and recommended an episode to me called Mr. Ring, which I have since watched, and was very enjoyable. The thing with Mr. Ring, Ron, um, if you're listening, it's Blade Runner, isn't it? It's just like, even right down to the robot android replicant, whatever you want to call it, in that episode, is made by the Terrell Corporation. And I'm watching it going, I wonder if the, the writers of Blade Runner watch this, because I don't recall the Terrell Corporation being in... Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, obviously, I've not read that since I was in high school. So it's entirely possible that it was in there and I just I just don't remember. Anyway, that wraps it up for this particular journey through the doors of the palace. Thank you for joining me if you stuck around. 
As always, feedback is appreciated and encouraged. I'd like to do more. And your correspondence is the best way to let me know if there's an audience for it. As I've said, I really want to do that War of the Worlds episode. I really want to do Top Ten Treks. I really want to do In Defense of Revenge of the Sith. So that entirely depends on whether there's an audience. Thank you very much for joining us. If you want to get in touch at the moment, I'm on the Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com email address. I may set one up individually for this show if that happens and I, I do promise I will think about giving this its own feed if, if you're one of those people who, who isn't interested and just wants to listen to Hey Kids again you know I have no problem with that I can understand that so thank you for joining us if you want to friend us on Facebook Hey Kids is the first name Comics is the surname again maybe I'll, I'll set one up just for Palace we'll have to see thank you for joining us take care bye bye